Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, gadget fan gorillas in our midst. It's time to come out of your hidey holes, take a deep breath of the cool, fresh air, feel the virtual sunlight on your face, and get a dose of what's good for you with another Mint Condition episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here to hose us all down with the big ideas that'll change our lives all for the better, it's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? I'm really good, and I like that you've mentioned fresh air there, James, because I did want to mention that Liddell Power Station recently closed down, mm. and it's been an interesting bit of commentary. That's do we need to insert it. some dramatic music there? For, <laughs> maybe, for maybe. That's right. We'll go back and do that again. But I think the commentary, there's been a few things that I've been finding interesting in the commentary. One has been, some people have said to me, oh, this new government that's in, that's closing down power stations. And I said, hold on a sec there. Trying to destroy the country. Because that's, that's right. what governments need to do. Exactly. That's what their aim is. But it's not the government that's closed down this power station. Liddell Power Station was owned by a private company. And the private company looked at that and said, gee, we've got a pretty old power station, about 52 years old or thereabouts. Which was older than its used by date, apparently. Absolutely older than its used by date. And in fact, if you look across the world, there's less than 1% of currently running coal-fired power stations that are of the age that Liddell was or older. So you're getting to the stage where the company said, we need to do something about this. This is too old. We need to get a new Zimmer frame for it or (laughs) just put it at pasture. Put it out to pasture, pull the thing down and go and look at other ways to generate energy. Now, they still need to provide energy. They've still got a business to run. They've still got to be providing energy. They've been slowly scaling back the amount of energy this has been providing to the grid. So when they Mm. flicked off the power switch on one Friday morning not long ago, we didn't notice our lights went out. In fact, we're still sitting here now with the lights on in the room we're sitting in. It's a yeah, fascinating thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been gearing up for this, obviously. At some point in time, they knew it was going to happen. But they had a choice. They could go and build another coal-fired power station or they could say, let's move into the new world, the new economy, the new ways of generating power. But and even exactly to build a new coal-fired easy for me to say, coal-fire power station. Uh, still, it takes about 25 years to build one of those things, I think. It's something re- enormous and long. Yeah, I don't know if it's 25 years. Yeah, no, no, that sounds way too long. Sorry, it was about uh, 10 years or something. I don't you know. don't duck into IKEA and get a few parts and tomorrow you put it together. It's certainly a process to build one. Even to deconstruct this existing power station is going to take them a couple of years. So mm. that site, which they're talking about using other things at that site, because they've got all the electricity infrastructure at that site and substation, etc. they're going to do things like put batteries in there, maybe put some firming power, maybe using some hydrogen for some firming power there, but that'll be used for something else. But they can't do that tomorrow. They need to take mm. away all the things and recycle. The amount of metal, the amount of steel that's at that site, just pulling all that out and recycling yeah. that. There's a lot of money still tied up in the power station. It's done its job. Thank you very much, Liddell. There were some people interviewed that I heard that worked there, had worked there for decades. Some people worked there their whole working life, and yeah, they, right. they referred to her as the old girl and some of the generators and some of the, the kids of the old girl there. So, well, If it's done, what, 52 years, so it's late 60s that it was built. 71, I think it was first turned on, so yeah, late 60s of, would have been built. So, yeah, it's yeah. been there for a while. So the tech then <laughs> went into building that thing. And that's the point, isn't it? That the techs moved on, even if you're going to build another coal-fired power station, then you'd use different tech mm. to what's there now. But it certainly is different, but it also says to the world that, yes, these are closing down and it's okay. We've got other solutions mm. that are coming, and we're going to talk about today a potential other solution that will help in that whole renewable energy paradigm shift. Mm. Yes, well, looking forward to that, folks. Now, are you ready for the future? Our first story addresses a moment eagerly anticipated anticipated even by every sci-fi fan and tech dreamer since the 50s, or maybe even earlier. Flying cars are here, people, and they are affordable. So cue the confetti cannons, pop the corks, bring on the superhighways of the sky... I won't waste your time with any further intro to this one. Matt, I'm calling this a flying car. Is that being a little over-enthusiastic? Uh, car-ish, you know. Yeah, car-ish. 
I, I notice in your notes here, you've mentioned Formula One, so it looks a bit like a Formula One car. It looks like the cage of a Formula One car combined with a drone. So it's called the Jetson One. You can go out and purchase one now if you're in America. I love that it's called the Jetson One too, Exactly right. <laughs> presumably that means... Homage the, to the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Yeah. Correct. And presumably that means there'll be a Hanna 2. Uh, sorry, not a Hanna 2, a, a, a Jetson, Jetson 2, two. Yeah, and a yeah. Jetson 3, etc. So it does look like the roll cage, if you like, of a Formula, well, Formula One car doesn't have a roll cage, but take a, a V8 supercar, the roll yeah. cage of that, built like a Formula One car to protect the passenger, and then put some extended arms out at each corner, put two propellers on each one, and you've got yourself a flying car-ish. So yeah, they do right. call it a flying car. But the great part is it's designed to be a personal commuting device. Yeah. means that you get in, only holds one person, you can fly it with no pilot's license. Now, this is in America. Now, this is amazing because <laughs> when I think about it, you know, in driving a car, you've only really got to worry about, you know, having your accident on one plane. <laughs> That's right. I want to say plane, one level. Yeah, so... But if you're, if you're in the air, things happen in 3D. They do happen in 3D because it comes under the ultralight vehicle classification in America under the FAA rules, then you don't need a pilot's license. Now, wow. I don't know what will happen in Australia when it comes to here, but at the moment, so you can go buy one in America, only $98,000, US $98,000, whack a deposit on tomorrow for $8,000 and you've got your secured or you've got your spot in the lineup secured. They've actually got hundreds of pre-orders, so people are ordering yeah, these, right. so they're, they're ready to go with them. So and reinforce your rooftops, folks. <laughs> exactly right, because you'll see them flying <laughs> overhead. Now, it's only designed to fly short hops. It only flies for about 20 minutes. So at the speed it does, about 102 kilometres an hour maximum yeah, that's speed. that's still a decent distance. It is. You're going to get maybe 30-odd kilometres out of it. But that's what it's designed for. It's not designed to jump in at Sydney and fly to Melbourne. Mm. It's designed to jump in in your house in a suburb in Sydney and fly to the office in the centre of Sydney. It's designed for those short hops. Landing might be At this issue. stage, though, <laughs> it's designed for a bit of fun. It's going to be designed Rather for those than short... Rather than less practicality? Well, possibly, but I think it's really the ultimate aim is those short commutes. The mm. problem is going to be where to land it yeah. because you need somewhere to land it, obviously. And it's got some pretty good safety features, which is why I'm assuming they're not saying you need to do any extensive training. They say, this is the manufacturer, a few minutes training on the joystick and you're right to go. And so you think, I'm going to be up there in the air. <laughs> so the sort of autopilot tech it's got has got to be pretty impressive then. Well, it does have LiDAR. Of course, it has GPS built in. If you're yeah. landing it, you can basically let it land itself. So you don't okay. have to be fantastically accurate with controls like a lunar lander or something. You can just go land and it will land automatically using its LiDAR yeah. and GPS to know exactly where it is. The one feature that I really like about it You've got to be higher than 20 metres to use it, but it does have a ballistic parachute. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> And it's not like a jet that you might see the Air Force flying where, oh, no, I'm in trouble, hit the eject button, and you go out through the top of the jet and the jet crashes. This parachute comes out of the back of it, and the whole device floats <laughs> right, down to the ground, about 20 metres. You, yeah. need, you need to be 20 metres above the ground for it to work. So 10 metres above right. the ground, which would still hurt yeah. if you collapse from 10 metres above the ground. Goodness There's me. not enough time for the parachute to actually be activated and slow you down. Keep that in mind when you're flying. So I'd be always flying above 20 metres until it's going to land. I am assuming that you get lots of warnings about the battery going flat because it's obviously electric. And that would be the main risk I would see, that you're flying along happily, battery going flat, Oh, I'll risk it. I'm almost there. Still going flat. It'll be right. I'll make it. Oh, whoops. I ran out of battery power and I'm still <laughs> 20 metres above the ground. Thank goodness for my parachute. So my mind's headed to all the problems that are going to occur here. Does it detect <laughs> kids flying kites? <laughs> no. You get flies, tangled up in a kite string there somewhere. <laughs> it is clever enough with the onboard computer that you could knock out one arm, one motor, oh, okay. one or two propellers okay. on one of the motors, and you're okay. So flying through a kite string <laughs> and wrapping around one <laughs> rotor, that's probably okay. You might be dragging a kid up off the ground yeah, with that's you. Right. That might be, I'm holding on, I'm holding on. <laughs> that might be great for a PR exercise, but it is fascinating. Now, we're getting there. I think that's the real message here. I'm not sure whether these are going to be everywhere like the Jetsons when you see them drop when George drops his son Elroy at the bottom of it and he goes to school. Mm. But I'm sure that we're going to see these devices used in some form of commuting 
some way in the very near future. In fact, right now, if you want to go and buy one of these, but you've got to fly to America first to do it. And if you're going to have one, maybe have a tennis court or a basketball court in your backyard. Is that <laughs> That's right? That's probably part of it, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe helipads on house roofs will ah, be a really popular addition standard to Standard design now. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about weddings of the future now. Traditional nuptials are getting futuristic twists with a, with a few tech options thrown into the mix at the altar. Happy couples can really tech up their big day now by exchanging smart rings before sealing the deal with a big kiss. Smart rings, I hear you ask. More of that in a moment. But if you ever had trouble finding just the right words to say in your vows, well, why wouldn't you get AI to take care of writing the vows for you? Matt... For the listeners who are currently in the process of planning their big day, can you see this digital edge adding to the romance on centre stage? It's adding right now, and my wife would probably be happy that we're not about to get married now because I could just Because you'd be going, I'm <laughs> straight on a chat GVT. All of these different things that yeah. you could just and imagine. Smart rings. So let's go through a few of them. Mm. Smart rings are definitely being exchanged instead of normal wedding bands. Now, what's a smart ring? It's a bit like a smart watch with a few extra features to maybe make the relationship a bit more interesting. So, for example, you and I can exchange smart rings, and just like a smart watch, it might be able to detect our heart rate. So, I it's going to vibrate every time we get a message from someone. <laughs> <laughs> no, just from me. I'm the only <laughs> important one. Right, okay. <laughs> but you can then, for example, check your heart rate with your smart ring, but I can also check on my partner's heart rate. So what's my partner doing at the moment? Is she okay or he okay? I'll just check the heart rate. And then maybe my partner needs a bit of cheering up so I can use my smart ring to send a vibrating message to my partner. Oh, right. That then is a little, I'm thinking of you, darling. So uh, we could have these smart rings and just, you get a little vibration and go, no, oh, Matt's thinking of me. Isn't that sweet of so him? So mood rings is such a thing of the past. Oh, absolutely. No, you need no. to get the message straight to your phone. That's right. Now, you can also track where people are. The problem might be that you track where someone is and then their heart rate goes up and then you might start questioning when they come home. <laughs> Hold on, you're at this location oh. and your heart rate was a bit higher. I was just going for a run. the gym. <laughs> that's right. So that's one way certainly that you could actually add a bit of tech to it. Another one that I really liked was at the wedding itself. Now, we thought we were really clever when we got married gee, 28 years ago now, when we got disposable cameras and sat a number of those on each table and said, just have some fun, take some some photos with them, some candid snaps. Sure, we've got our professional wedding photographer there, but it'll be interesting to see what those candid snaps. And I hope people were responsible. They were very responsible. Oh, that's good. In the main. (laughs) (laughs) But we got, you know, out of all those cameras we put at all the tables and hundreds of photos taken, had to get them developed back in those old days. We probably got two or three good shots out of all those. Now, people are putting in photo booths at their wedding, but it's not just a photo booth, they're gift booths. So at the wedding, you go in, you have your gift booth there, and you have a few friends duck into that gift booth and hey jump up now and cheer and of course you've then got a gift that you can use of people at your wedding celebrating what they were doing at the wedding you mentioned chat dpt writing your vows i know that myself and my wife both wrote what we were going to say and memorize that to say that on the wedding day but oh that was a lot of work you know just get chat (laughs) gpt to write your vows I've got a really special person, ChatGPT. I want you to write a really personalised message for that's straight from my heart. Can you do that for me? From my heart, (laughs) yeah. And ChatGPT will come up with something that sounds absolutely beautiful. And they can knock one up in a couple of minutes, um, but they can knock up several, and you can then choose. (laughs) Well, you could choose or modify or do whatever. I think I would have gone for that. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a good option, doesn't it? But even just the way people do their wedding invites, they're using social media, they're using WhatsApp, all sorts of things now to basically get their wedding invites out there. I remember it took ages for our wedding getting the right type of paper oh, yeah. for the wedding invite and yeah. getting the right printing. And, oh, there was so much work done there. How much easier would it be that you just send a, an e-invite of some description? You can dress that up and make it look pretty fancy as well. It does create a bit of a problem when you want to invite some people to your wedding that maybe aren't as advanced with their adoption of technology. Ah. Now, for me, that'd be easy. We just don't invite them. But, but, but maybe, maybe you've you got either it. tech up or you're out. That's right. If yeah, you don't okay. get this invite in the way I want to send it, then bad luck. I don't like you anymore. But maybe you'd have to have some more traditional methods. But I think it's changing. It's the same as it's changing everything. Tech is changing what we're doing in every part of our lives. Mm. It's no surprise that tech is changing what's happening in weddings. But even when you get to the stage with those smart rings, that's the one that I really like the idea of some practicality because rings can be expensive. But at least if it's got technology built in, yeah. I can justify the expense rather than just some diamonds or th- stuff thrown in there. 
So where do you get your DVDs from, folks? Probably nowhere, if you're like me. I reckon the last time we bought a DVD was about a decade ago, but apparently people are still doing it. And even more surprisingly to me, there are still people in the world who have been getting their Netflix in DVD format. Well, Netflix are finally pulling the pin on their DVD service. And I guess that one guy left is going to have to find another way to get his movies. Matt, I hope the good people at Netflix were able to notify their customer with a nicely worded fax or um, do you think a couple of, maybe a cold phone message left on their analogue answering machine? Maybe a carrier pigeon, maybe get yeah, 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 some right. smoke signals or something. <laughs> but they have given that one person some notice. You've got till September this year to, to get all keep, the movies that you could possibly want. Getting your DVDs. <laughs> now, many people aren't aware that Netflix started out as a DVD for mail service. And that's me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and apparently the story goes, back around 97 or so, 1997, there was a story, now it may be an urban myth, but I love it anyway, where one of the founders of Netflix took back his video cassette rental to his local blockbuster store, Apollo 13 goes the myth, and he said, here's my video return. Well, so you've had that for too long. Here's a $30 late fee for that. Oh, and he was man. horrified by this. And that's when he came up with the idea of, well, wouldn't it be easier if people could get their videos back? Because it's always a hassle yeah. taking the video back. For many of our listeners, they won't understand the pressure that was put on you <laughs> to get your video back on time to avoid the late fee. It was always bad. Particularly when, when you had kids and they'd hide them in the cushions of the couch. That's right. You'd go back to rent another movie and they'd say, sure, sir, that'll be $3,000 because you <laughs> haven't returned one from last year. So this particular gentleman said, well, maybe we'll do it better than that. But it was all a bit clumsy with video cassettes because they were a bit easy to break. They were fairly large to send mm. through the post. And when DVDs came out, that was the trigger to start their whole business model. So in 1998, they started March 1998. The first DVD was shipped out. Beetlejuice was the very first one they shipped ah, out. Classic. Exactly. And so this is the whole DVD by mail service. Now, to their credit, they did not call it DVD by mail because they understood that would date it. It was... Beta, then it was VHS, mm. it was then DVD. What was next, we don't necessarily know, but it's not going to be DVD forever. So having DVD in the name didn't make sense, so they called it Netflix, and it was a home delivery DVD service. Fantastic, great idea. Off you go and start running the whole business from there. A few years later, I don't know exactly when, but they did actually say, once they started to build up some deliveries, they did actually go to Blockbuster and say, hey, you seem to have a fairly good share of the market here with your video stores or hundreds across the, the nation, in fact, across the world. Why don't you buy us? And you can still hear, if you just listen very quietly, you can still just hear the management of Blockbuster laughing <laughs> at Netflix at this little piddly mail order <laughs> DVD delivery service about We're coming, going to live forever. Right, <laughs> about the idea of us paying a dollar for your business. Yeah, you are right. dreaming. Of course, history says that Blockbuster eventually went broke when people stopped yeah. visiting stores and Netflix now has approximately, at last count, about 232.5 million subscribers across the world. So they have made the announcement that, yes, we're cutting out the DVD delivery service. In September this year, as I mentioned before, They've delivered in that time 5.2 billion DVDs. Hmm. So there were some people out there who did like the idea of the DVD delivery Yeah, service. look, and I'll give them that right up to about 2010, 2013 even. But um, once streaming really started to happen. That's right. And then that's where they were clever enough to look to the future and say, there's this other thing happening, streaming, so let's get in on that. And yeah. Obviously, all those subscribers across the world are streaming, or well, most of those are streaming subscribers. Well, were they the first? Were they, were they the front runners in streaming? I don't know that I could tell you definitively they're the first, but they're certainly at the forefront. They were prominent, yeah. And, and that's right. And they already had a good name because they were out delivering DVDs, and they already had a customer base, and they were already established. And now this is just another way of delivering movies to people. So the whole business yeah. model is how do we get – content to people. Well, at this stage, we deliver content via DVD mail. Tomorrow, it'll be delivering via the internet. The next day, who knows what'll happen mm. with there. The other one that I did like, just a bit of a blast from the past, I'm not sure if you can remember the days that people were trying different models about cassette, video cassette rentals. So you did go down to the local video store and look through them all. And of course, the one that you wanted was always already hired out because yeah. someone else had been there before you. But do you remember when someone came up with the idea of driving around the Video Easy van 
there'd actually be a van oh. full of DVD, or not DVDs, video cassettes, and they'd drive. So you'd ring up an order. Yeah. The van would come to your place. You'd get in. You'd look around in there and <laughs> try and find. We never did that. Uh, but I always wondered about that. Yeah, yeah right. No, yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was a, a really interesting idea. Obviously, the number of titles I had was dramatically reduced because it was one van rather you than get a store. Star Wars. That's for sure. You get the popular ones. That was all that mattered, and they'd come to your store. So they obviously saw the problem as well in returning back to the store and getting a fine. So they would come and deliver it to your house and then they'd come back two days later, whatever the time frame was, and pick it up from your house. So it made it very easy, mm. but it was still driving a vehicle around, whereas now Netflix does it via the internet, which is a bit easier for all of that. So Back in those days, we used to plan as well, oh, it's, it's Friday night, so let's get a, a, a video, you know? And, and that was, so you'd watch it that Friday night. You'd then hold on to it for another week or so, <laughs> right. and, or more, and pay the fine. But um, yeah. So you were the one who yeah. planned that always had the good titles, and I went down to get them, and they weren't there then. <laughs> so it is interesting. So it's the end of an era for those DVD deliveries. There you go. Well, Americans will do whatever they can to reduce the disproportionate volume of gun deaths in their country without actually moving on the obvious solution. Here today, from the files of the NRA vault of solutions that still allow absolutely everyone to pack serious heat, comes a story about yet another paltry effort to bring down the gun death toll. Gun manufacturer Biofire have designed a smart gun that can only be used by the owner. Matt, this firearm tech recognises the person that it's registered to, so presumably it can also tell you if, if you're a good guy <laughs> or a bad guy about to go on a rampage, or maybe it can tell if you're a good guy who's just having a really bad day. <laughs> All of the above, maybe. Right. Maybe it needs to go a bit further and check your state of mental health at the yeah. time that you're going to use the gun. But the really sad part, which you alluded to there, is that the leading cause of death for children and adolescents in the U.S., is gun violence, yeah. which is pretty sad. Now, I say that from a position where I think we've got it right in this country, in Australia. I think we've got our gun laws right. I feel like we're the lucky country in some ways, yeah. Exactly right. We don't feel like we're going to risk ourselves going to a school or a shopping centre each day. But let's get away from that. Yeah, we'll get away from that. And look at the technology. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, let's so go back to the tech. This one company has come up with the idea of saying, let's reduce gun violence by making sure a few things. Firstly... The person that's holding this gun is the authorised user of the gun. Mm. So if I'm a parent that needs a gun in my home for whatever reason and I put it away maybe in my safe or maybe I have it somewhere that's underneath a couple of underpants in my top drawer and the kids know where it is and they want to get out because they've had a bad day or take it out on their ex-girlfriend, whatever. Or even are just playing with it, you know, and and so accidental gun deaths are an issue in America. Yeah, Yeah. you're spot on. When that person pulls it out and they have to have their fingerprint on a certain spot of the gun, the fingerprint recognition part, and it says, sorry, not authorised. So then the Mm. gun is useless. Now, the interesting part about this is that the firing pin in this gun is a fire by wire. So a normal gun would have a mechanical connection between the trigger and the firing pin that will go on and hit the primer on the bullet. But this one uses electronic signals, so when you pull the trigger... It's using electronic signals to then activate the firing pin, which is quite clever. Yeah, right. In that process, it will only allow that to happen, obviously, if it says, yes, this person's been authorised. So they can use facial recognition, or they can use fingerprint, or they can use both. But you probably, if you wanted to use a gun legitimately, you probably don't want to muck around going, right, now, face, okay, now that's good, now, fingerprint, right. Okay, now I can use the gun. Yeah, you probably particularly want if they're trying the to other. protect themselves from the thousands of people who are breaking into their house <laughs> that's, on it every that's night. exactly so. right. And it, it is interesting because there are so many people in America that do have access to guns, and they, there were some surveys done that said something like two-thirds of the population said they could access a gun within five minutes. Hmm. Presumably that means in a safe in their house or somewhere hidden away. So Fingers crossed for that, but probably not. Probably not, that's right. It might be in a safe, but the safe isn't locked or everyone knows the code for it. So this is actually quite interesting technology. The other part that I think is really important about it is that if I said after a gun was used in a, an incident, oh, that wasn't me, officer, my gun must have been stolen. Ah. Well, it keeps a record of the fingerprint activation of the person that used it. So then they look at it and they say, well, the gun was fired at 7.18pm and it was authorised by your fingerprint at 7.18pm. We're pretty sure you were there when it was fired or you maybe did the firing. So now my story changes to be, oh, yes, 
the criminal maybe put my finger <laughs> on it before <laughs> he used right. the gun. Okay. And so then That's it becomes a, a bit more obvious. It requires it a little bit more elaboration in the story. Yeah. Exactly right, which then leads to people being caught out for what they're doing. So I like that part of it. Mm. The really big issue here is that I don't have a number to tell you, but it would be a large number of how many guns there are in America mm. at the moment owned by private people. And they don't have this technology on them. I'm not sure that it's able to retrofit this to all of those guns. Yeah. So even if the government of the day decided that this was a really good idea and from now on all new guns must have this technology, well, what about all those guns that are out there? So mm. it's a pretty big job to change all those over. Maybe they should just ban them, but we're getting too political yeah, now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, interesting, interesting technology, I thought. to some sanity now and here's some tech to get the adrenaline pumping without fear of seriously endangering life. Queensland has recently hosted a Grand Prix event for remote control cars and these were all powered by hydrogen. In a bid to promote careers in STEM, teams of students descended upon Gladstone to flex their muscle, albeit in a, on a small scale and Matt, by all accounts, was a pretty awesome event. Well, we've talked before about the science and engineering challenge that Newcastle Uni runs, and certainly you've been very involved with over the years. And that's really to get kids to be creative and innovative and their solutions to different problems and also to get them interested in science. Teamwork uh, and and many heads work so well when you're talking about trying to solve problems. And I watched some videos of these kids, and I think there are a whole range of things that will be achieved by this. So the first thing is that they get a kit. The school says, yes, I want to be part of this. They get a kit. So they get sent out a hydrogen car, and they've got certain components there. They also get some plans that they could 3D print some other components if they want. And then they're given that kit to play with for a number of weeks. So they can play with it, innovate, be creative. There's certain parameters you've got to stay within, just the same as the rules of any car race. And then once they've done all that, they then get to the stage where there's a Grand Prix event held. Mm. And they've got 20 teams that competed. They all turn up with their pit crews and their cars, and they need refueling during the event. Sounds very cool. It does. It sounds like fun. And I watch the track, and you just see these cars going everywhere around there. They've all got transponders on them, so they're all being tracked. The winning team, the Baptist, sorry, the Faith Baptist Christian School, did 550 laps around the remote control track. It's not a full-size track, obviously. And so, obviously, there's a lot of action happening. You can imagine 20 teams. Oh, so it wasn't first across the line. It was how long can you keep it going for? You just, well, you just... by a certain amount of amount hydrogen. Of, it was a amount of time. Oh, okay. And so you just kept lapping oh, around. Oh, sorry. You, yeah, got you. You got, you got to refuel during the event. But even... I watched some interviews with some of the kids, and they were talking about the tyres, and they'd done some experiments. So these tyres they were talking about gave better grip, but we found they weren't as energy efficient as these other tyres. So we found using these, we got to keep the car on the track longer, yeah, but they right. weren't as good in the corners so we had to weigh up which way was the best way to go so all of these decisions are being made kids were coming up with different solutions that the teachers never thought of they were 3d printing different components for them so there's all these different things they were doing and so the winning team fantastic world under them they now go to las vegas where there will be 35 teams from 20 countries from around the world all competing the same concept where they take their Grand Prix car and they take their pit crew. Imagine the team from the Faith Baptist Christian School, the kids there going yeah. to Las Vegas what to an race awesome remote experience. control cars. Yeah. So there's a few things. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> that's right, except the winner. We'll announce the winner, but that's it. Nothing else is talked about. But all these different things, I'm sure out of all those teams and all those different innovations they come up with, the people who design these cars will go, oh, I like that idea. Maybe we could use that in another remote control car or maybe we could use that in a full-size car yeah. because hydrogen might be a way that we're powering vehicles of some description in the future. But also those kids, I guarantee, they'll be more interested in science, they'll be yeah. more aware of things happening and maybe there's a future in other propulsion methods for cars out there. So I love the concept. Engineers of the future. That's right. And going with the video, the, the video did look crazy, just cars racing everywhere around this track. <laughs> Talked about it earlier, but with the Liddell Power Station in the Hunter Valley recently shutting down, a genuine fear has set in about how New South Wales will keep the lights on consistently over the coming years. For the Boffins promoting sustainability, the answer will come in the form of diversification, with initiatives coming in all manner of shapes and forms. And one of them will be in the form of storing solar and wind power in giant gravity batteries. Matt, there are a couple of these already being built in the China and the US, What's the deal with these giant gravity batteries? And that's what prompted this story. 
we've talked a little bit about the concept of these before and they've built some in some small demonstration sites to just make sure it all works and the theory stacks up with the practical outcomes. But now you're spot on. There's one construction in China, one construction in Texas in the US. I'll talk a bit more about those, but I want to go back a little bit first of all because one of the things that frustrates me no end is when people talk about solar and wind, they of course say, well... What happens when the wind's not blowing? That's right. And the sun doesn't always shine. The sun goes down each night. You got me. And you know that there are all these people out there who talk about this baseload power. And it's one of the real frustrations I hear when I hear baseload power. The whole thing around baseload power was created by the electricity generators with coal-fired power stations because of one of the limitations of coal-fired power Mm. stations. You don't just flick a switch and you start getting electricity out of a coal-fired power station and then at night time I'll flick a couple off because we don't need so many. The start-up and shut-down, both of them are a day, maybe days long, depending on the actual technology in those coal-fired power stations. So the generator said, wow, we've got all this electricity at night time. Oh, what are we going to do with that? How can we use that? Because we're just wasting it. Oh, I know. Let's come up with off-peak electricity so we have the need for more electricity at night time and less during the day. That'll balance it out. And hence, we have this whole thing with baseload power. There were some pretty clever inventions, and it goes back to 1938 when the first ripple meter was created. So you had then meters for electricity, and then you put these ripple meters on, and they had the ability for the electricity generator to send a ripple down the line of a different frequency to turn on a ripple meter and then turn it off. And that's how you get the charging for off-peak. So, for example, at 10 o'clock at night, they would get a frequency come down the line. Oh, there's that frequency. I can now turn on my metering so that can start using off-peak electricity. 6 o'clock in the morning, turn it off. But hold on. That's not good if everything comes on at the same time and everything goes off when that ripple comes through. So the ripple meters themselves, after they get the ripple notification, have a randomised amount of time before they come on, usually within minutes. So it's quite clever technology. And so that's how we've got off-peak, for example, hot water systems or off-peak slab heating systems. Some people even have their pool systems, their pool filtering systems hooked up to off-peak. So a whole range of things. But that's why we've got this base load of power because the generators had a limitation in coal-fired power. Now we've got a limitation in sun. We don't have sun at night time. And we've also got maybe not wind blowing all the time. So we've got to have some way of storing power. Now, forever and a day, Generators with coal-fired power would have loved to have a way of storing power because they're generating this power, they're burning coal, and we can't use it so we can't charge for it. They would have loved to have a way of storing it, but the easiest solution was just to put more coal in and burn it so they didn't worry about it too much. But now we've got the problem. So you've got batteries. Now, batteries aren't too bad, but the mining of all those different materials, some rare earth materials, critical raw materials, there's a lot needed for all these batteries. So Mm. that may not be the best solution going forward. And they do have a lifetime. Batteries do slowly degrade. Their efficiency isn't too bad, about 80%. The other one we're seeing a fair bit of now is pumped hydro, and I get a bit frustrated. I'm very frustrated today, aren't I? I get a bit frustrated when people say, oh, pumped hydro, that's the best way to generate electricity. I go, no, it generates no electricity. Mm. It stores electricity. electricity. So pumped hydro, of course, you pump the water up to a reservoir when you've got excess power, middle of the day, for example, and at night time when you need that power, you let the water fall down through a pipe, turns a generator, away you go. So pumped hydro is a great way. And again, pretty efficient in terms of that, but you need somewhere you've got a height differential and you need water. Now, water's being recycled. It's going up and down and up and down, but you still get evaporation. Mm. So you need some supply of water. So that's not perfect. But then we get to gravity batteries. And what I love about gravity batteries is the concept here is you take a large weight, a big, say, cement block, or in this case they use some rammed earth, and you put it on some pulleys, and then when you've got excess power, you use those pulleys to lift the weights up. So you increase their potential energy, if you like, if you want Mm -hmm. to get scientific about it. And then when you need the excess, or you need that power that's been stored, it's stored as potential energy, you let that big weight fall, not just randomly falling off a cliff at 9.8 metres per second per second, you let it fall in a gradual fall, turning a turbine, and it generates electricity. So you're turning that potential energy into kinetic energy to generate power. Again, very efficient. So you're not losing much each time you do this. And so this is a great way to do it because all you need is somewhere that's maybe the size of an office block. So you, and again, depending how big you want it, and it just is a matter of the bigger you build it, the more power you can either 
store mm. or generate at the same time. And if I look at these two examples in China and in the US, the Chinese gravity storage system they're building can store 100 megawatt hours of electricity and a maximum output at any one given point in time of 25 megawatts. The US one is smaller in storage, 36 megawatt hours, but its output is similar in terms of 18 megawatts. And with this, it's kind of a, a, an equation you can do about how wide you make the gravity storage device, the, the whole building, or how long you make it. So the wider you make it, the more pulleys you can put up. So that means the more output of power you can have at any given point in time, the more instantaneous power. The longer you do it, you can store more of the weights. So therefore, you've got more battery storage capabilities. This is amazing. But sorry, can, did you already say um, how we get the weights up high? So when you've got the excess electricity. So when uh, you're right, okay, sorry. middle yeah. of the day, you've yep. got solar power, go, wow, we've got too much now. What are we going to do with that extra power? Oh, lift some weights up. Yeah, so right. you lift them up, so then then stored at a high level. Of course. That the makes technology sense. in these is fantastic because you've got all these pulleys. And I saw one as one of the demonstration systems working, and you've got all these pulleys and all these weights, and there's just this constant motion of weights coming down, another one being yeah. moved into position ready to go, and then it falls down. 1.9 metres per second they fall. So obviously the higher you can make the building, the better, within reason. But you just need to find an office box somewhere to build it. And in terms of raw materials, they make the, the weights, and these examples that are being built, they're 24 tonnes each, is the mass of each of those being strictly clear. It's not, that's not the weight, it's the mass of each of those. Yeah. And it's just highly compressed dirt, as I mentioned before. So it's not using up all of these fantastic raw materials. They compress the dirt. They probably put some sort of setting compound in there as well. But... It's just these it's weights. so clever. It is, isn't it? And so this, in terms of a battery, is fantastic. So now we might have pumped hydro. If you happen to have water nearby and some change in elevation, sure, use pumped hydro. It makes sense. You might have some chemical batteries somewhere. Mm. But gravity batteries, they can be constructed out in the middle of nowhere. They can be constructed next to a wind farm, next to a solar farm, so they can have some sort of even out of the power delivery. You can put them in an office block. You can put them in the middle of a city if you like. So anywhere you want to build this, you can have it. And silent. <laughs> and silent. I can't see a lot of noise being generated by yeah. the pulleys and the turbines. I can't see a big smoke plume coming out the top of it like a coal-fired power station. So, yeah, silent. I mean, I just I love the concept. This will be really important, though. These two that are being built will be important just to see how much it cost to build, mm. how efficiently does it work. I really can't see them having a short lifetime. A chemical battery's got a yeah. fairly set lifetime. You're wearing out components as they lift them up and down, so you make well, sure your bearings you, you, are being maintained. But apart from that, it's not your wearing lines out. Are, are all intact and, and strong. Yeah, but uh, yeah. And the other really important part is if I store energy in a battery, a chemical battery, then I walk away and leave it and I come back six months later and it's not at 100%. Mm. I've lost a little bit, so I do get a little bit of leakage. If I store energy in pumped hydro and walk away for six months, I come back and the top dam might be half full because that damn sun and evaporation mm. took some of that water away. But if I put these weights at a higher level of potential energy and I walk away for six months and I come back, I've still got all my potential energy. They haven't fallen yeah. a bit. They haven't lost some of their mass. They're all there waiting to go. When you need me, I'm here, whenever you like. So I've got unlimited time frame of storage. I've got a device that's got a long time frame to keep operating, surely, and it's a very efficient way of storing it, and I can build it anywhere. So what you're saying is the solution to this energy crisis is initiative. The solution is initiative, but also give it a little bit of time. I reckon we'll solve these problems about no wind and no, yeah. and no sun when we need them, just the same as we solve the problem with all this coal-fired power being wasted in the middle of the night. We solve that problem with off-peak electricity, which... If you suggested that as a solution now, okay, let's make everyone generate their hot water after hours. But what about if I'm using the shower a bit during the middle of the day and I get a cold shower? I don't want a cold shower. Well, yeah. you should have put up with it, sir. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, damn, this coal-fired power. It's no good. <laughs> One topic that's come up a bit here at Tech Talk is that of electric planes. We've talked about some of the problems in supplying enough energy in a battery to keep the propellers spinning for long enough to move people long distances. Part of the solution, at least, is likely to come down to the propeller design. Students of junior science will tell you that energy cannot be destroyed, but only converted or transferred. So if a propeller 
is making too much noise, then energy is lost to the environment in an unusable form. Reduce that energy loss and you've more energy for propulsion. Matt is here today to herald the era of the quiet propeller. Well, I actually think it goes back a long time when planes were being built back in the early 1900s with propellers and they started to do some development on those propellers and then some genius came along with the jet engine and everyone said, well, forget about propellers. We'll just go and build everything with jet engines. So I actually think they didn't develop propellers anywhere near to the level that they could have been developed at because of jet engines. Yeah. Now we're at the point where it's probably going to be easier for the short-haul flights that we talk about with electric planes, maybe one hour, one and a half hour, those type of flights, to have just an electric motor. In fact, there are some, um, not manufacturers, there are some airplane companies already at the moment that are looking at their planes and saying, let's just try taking out those good old turboprop engines and putting in an electric motor. Done. Oh, that was pretty simple, wasn't it? So in doing that, now there's some serious research being done on the propellers. How many propellers is the right amount? Now, we've got a bit of an idea about that around thrust, but we haven't got much of an idea around noise. Mm. So there are all these experiments being done, and Chalmers University is really leading the way, this is out of Sweden, really leading the way in trying to get all of these parameters modified and come up with a solution. Because again, think of the wind tunnel, the engineering, the computing power we've got now compared to back in the early 1900s. Mm. So surely we can develop a, a propeller that's much better than they could have developed 100 years ago with all of this technology. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, let's throw a lot of technology, let's throw a lot of research at this problem. So the exact length, the exact pitch, the exact width of the propeller, the number, the six or three, what's the best number of actual blades on that propeller? And the tip vortices is one of the really interesting parts because that's where a lot of the noise is produced. Now, you remember years ago, we used to fly in planes that had wings that were just straight at the end. And then someone came up with the idea of just putting a bend on the end of a wing and the savings in fuel were quite incredible. The savings in just the ability for that plane to work more efficiently suddenly every plane had a bent wingtip. Aerodynamics is amazing. It is a very complicated area, isn't it? (laughs) But some of these researchers have said, we've talked about the idea of bending the end of a propeller. If it works on the end of a wing for a plane, well, a propeller is kind of like a wing just spinning around very fast, so maybe that would work as well. So all these different experiments are occurring to see the most efficient and most noise-efficient propeller. So we will get to the stage where you won't have the major part of the noise coming from the engine, which is now when you're sitting on the tarmac in a propeller plane waiting to take off, you can hear the engine You can probably hear a bit of propeller, and then when you're flying, it's a bit of wind noise and propeller and engine all mixed together. You take that engine out, and then you start to have the point where you need to have this propeller quieter. And I I see the same thing happening with electric cars, where there are so many things being done. You buy EVs now that have got double-glazed windows, for example. You've got tyres in some of these EVs that have got foam in the middle of the tyre to try and reduce that road noise, because you don't have this big thumping engine making all this noise, so you're trying to work out where else you can reduce the noise, and Mm. that's exactly what they're doing at Chalmers. They're saying, how do we work out how to make these propellers quieter? Because people are going to notice noise propellers once you start putting electric motors in. Sounds sounds fascinating. (laughs) Well, who doesn't love a super fast train? You don't need people in your life like that. Well, both the Chinese and Japanese do love their superfast trains. Existing superfast trains are already operating in these places at speeds of up to about 600 kilometres an hour. That, that makes the daily commute over long distances very convenient, particularly with boarding and disembarking transitions being much more fluid than with air travel. Well, China wants to up the game another notch, and they're progressing to a hyperloop rail service between Shanghai and Hangzhou, That'll pull, put butterflies in your belly like nothing else. Matt, when this 200-kilometre project finishes, commuters will be able to duck home for lunch each day. It does sound incredible, doesn't it? And 600 kilometres an hour? <laughs> yeah, I, I, laugh I that off. You. <laughs> That's right. They're talking about 990 kilometres an hour. Now, I'm not sure if Elon Musk is that impressed because he's obviously got the Hyperloop system that he's been out there talking about and talking it up, and they've got a little test tunnel under Vegas. But... When China decides to do something, they do something. It's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> they don't say, let's do a little test one just underneath the city for a, yeah. a two-minute commute. First, a full-scale first time. Correct. So they're going 175 kilometres between two cities in pretty much a straight line. 
and they say 990 kilometres an hour. Now, it doesn't go from zero to 990 instantly because obviously you'd have all your passengers with a little bit of mush at the end of them. So you've got to get up to that speed. But if you could do it at that speed, you'd take about 10 minutes to do yeah. that commute. So you could duck You're probably still looking at about 15 minutes though. You probably to get it up to speed and then down to speed. Now, why don't they do this with bullet trains? What's the difference between a bullet train and Hyperloop? Well, the big difference is that in Hyperloop, it's underground, so that's great. You're not having to worry about any obstructions above ground, but it is in a depressurized tunnel. So mm. you get the huge advantage of the reduction of air, air resistance. resistance yeah. So that train that might use a certain amount of power to get to 400, 500, 600 kilometers an hour in a normal bullet train. And, and the noses on those things are like arrowheads. <laughs> they're, they're like, um, yeah, something next level. That's right, to try and slice through that air, but remove the air, you and you've still got a maglev system. So you've still got that same sort of magnetic, magnetic levitation system. Yeah, yeah. So you haven't got the friction of wheels on tracks, and then you take away the air resistance. Now, we've talked about air resistance before. You double the speed, you quadruple the air resistance. So think about if, for example, you were going 100 kilometers an hour on a train cutting through the air and then you took away the air and or, or go back the other way sorry if you went from 100 kilometers an hour to 400 kilometers an hour which is a slow bullet train mm. then you are so slow bullet train, <laughs> yeah. you, you're increasing your air resistance by a factor of 16 because you're, yeah. you're quadrupling when you double you go four times the speed 16 times the air resistance take away that air suddenly you're getting a very nice ride through a yeah. Hyperloop tunnel. And I've looked at some of the plans because I thought, well, hold on, you can't have the whole Hyperloop with a reduction in air because you get out of the train and you can't breathe. So they're actually quite clever where they go through little holding stations that are air sealed. So you come along in your train, you've got it pressurised like an aeroplane so you can breathe, but you're in a tunnel that's got minimal air in there. You come along and then you get to a station, you slow down and you go through an airlock. So you come into the station and stop in the airlock and you get out and everyone can breathe and everyone's fine. Yeah. Go back through the next airlock. So it's quite clever in terms of that technology. I don't know how many stops they're having on this particular line. The fewer of those, the better, because you don't want to slow down. You want to just That's go right. flat out. You want to get home in time for lunch. That's right. And then get back to work again. <laughs> exactly right. 200 kilometres away. So it does sound quite incredible, and it's great to see someone doing it on a large scale. And I agree, absolutely, the efficiency of getting on a train compared to getting on a plane. Mm. Oh, you seem to have to get to a plane so early. Sometimes yeah. you spend longer in the airport through security, mucking around getting on the plane yeah. than the actual plane trip itself. Whereas trains, you can turn up a few minutes beforehand, walk on in, everything's fine, happy days are where you go. So yeah. it does make it more efficient for that. So I'd love to see this. I'd love to have a, a ride on one of these. I've been on bullet trains in China and in Japan, and it's just fascinating going at those speeds. Well, um, you probably wouldn't get the sensation of movement if it's underground as well. There's not a lot of uh, things to look at at the window. But, um, but yeah, just, just the fact that you know that you're... 200 kilometres away, and you got up at you know 7.30 to get to work at 8 o'clock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it does sound great, doesn't it? Do you have a sleep tracker and find yourself periodically checking on the quality of your sleep from time to time for the night before? It's a bit of a thing these days. But how many times have you looked at your evening stats and thought, that cannot be right? I know there have been times when, personally, I've had a terrible night's sleep and I've gone to check up on just how bad things were last night. And my device has given me two thumbs up on a job well done. Matt, my smartwatch is gaslighting me. <laughs> you may have, James, orthosomnia. This is a new... I definitely have it. I don't <laughs> even know what it is, but I feel like I've got it. Why not? Yeah, I'll have one of those things. <laughs> orthosomnia is a new medical condition, and it describes anxiety driven by the pursuit of optimal sleep. And exactly... Trying to sleep too hard. Trying to sleep perfectly. So you get up in the morning and you look at your sleep track and you go, oh, no, I didn't get a perfect score. I didn't sleep the number of hours I wanted to. Yeah. I had restless sleep for that. Oh, no, I'm really anxious and concerned about that. And then you go to bed that night and you're still anxious and concerned as to whether or not you can actually get your optimal sleep. And then the next day you find it wasn't quite right again. <laughs> it may have been perfect. But the sleep tracking technology isn't perfect. Yeah. Or it may not have been perfect, but look, that's okay. Sometimes that happens. But apparently athletes are the main ones suffering from orthosomnia because in their training program now, a really important part of their training program is their sleep. So you go out there, you train, you do all your reps of whatever you're meant to be doing, but you need that sleep for your body to rest and rebuild those muscles and all the work that you've done to be put to ultimate use. So athletes are focusing on this sleep technology, but 
average Joe Blows, you know, non-athletes like you and I are focusing on it as well. <laughs> but this is a problem because the technology isn't perfect. And some examples that the, the clinicians gave, you could be laying in bed reading a book, which I'm not sure people do that anymore, but apparently some people mm, still do that. It still happens. And sleep trackers might detect the lack of movement and the lowered heart rate as enough to be, oh, yep, you're asleep at the moment. You're not. Your body's not in full restful state, in particular mm. your mind. And so you're actually lying there awake, but your sleep technology is going, oh, well done, you're getting an extra half an hour sleep or whatever it might be. So that might not give you an accurate message or accurate information. It can't always pick REM sleep, and REM sleep is really important, about on a 90-minute cycle or so is when you have your REM sleep. But trying to pick these differences in your sleep, trying to pick your heart rate when it's sleeping, mm. trying to pick the level of, of comfort you're in if you sleep. It's all very difficult. And sleep trackers are at the very early stages of all of this. Unless you're going to wire yourself up completely to a whole range of devices, you're probably not going to get this accurate information. But we do look at it and go, oh, no, or oh, yes, that's great, or whatever it might be. So I suppose the message here is the technology is fascinating. It's good as a tool. It's actually interesting to look at, but don't rely on it too heavily and get to the point where you base all your decisions on your sleep tracking technology, I um I'm always disappointed that um sleep trackers don't measure your sleep in terms of speed. When you talk about being fast asleep, my university friends and I used to talk about how fast we were asleep: 120 kilometers an hour, or <laughs> just just a 60 kilometer hour sleep. That one. And so, how did you improve the speed? If your speed wasn't good enough, how did you? Well, that's I don't know, but yeah, it wasn't about improving your sleep; it was about rating your sleep in kilometers per hour, how fast asleep you were. <laughs> Anyway, on that note, folks, I can feel an uncontrollable urge to curl up on the couch and take a power nap. If you're listening to this podcast in the car and feeling just the same, then maybe think hard about the merits of pulling off the road first. Matt, thanks for another cracking tech talk. No offence about the sleepy time banter just now. That's right. I um, I just want to go and find now a DVD player. I just want to see if I've got yeah. one in the house to try and find a DVD to put and it on. And see if you've got any DVDs left. That's right. And then just remember that old technology. Okay, off I go to sail in on the sea with winkin', blinkin' and nod and dream the sweet dreams of super fast trains and super quiet planes and flying cars and such. And maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to give my smartwatch some data that doesn't have to lie to me about. Thanks for tuning in to another Tech Talk, uh, for, uh, folks. Uh, Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, even. Streamed coast to coast and across the deep blue sea, courtesy of the miracle of the internet. I'm your host, James Eddy, and I'm delighted to present to you this tidy little podcast week to week. I hope you enjoy it just as much. Take care until next time.